Well, greetings, brethren, and uh, welcome to the last day of Unleavened Bread in 2017. If we take our Bibles and turn over to Numbers chapter 28, Numbers the 28th chapter, beginning in verse 16, we read the following. It said, on the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the 15th day of this month is the feast. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation, and you will do no customary work. And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year, and be sure they are without blemish. They had to be perfect. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull, two-tenths for a ram. You shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs, and also one goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. And you shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is a regular burnt offering. For in this manner you shall offer food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days as a sweet aroma to the Lord, and it shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you will have a holy convocation, and you shall do no customary work. You know, in the Old Testament, God was very clear in how things would be done when it concerned worshiping him and coming before him on the Sabbaths and the holy days. To one extent or another, we all face challenges of coming out of the attitudes and opinions of the world. We all, including myself, have to be sure and careful that we keep fighting against the messages of this world. You know, Satan tries to market many ideas in the cloak of niceness and seeming goodness. You know, the old Protestant adage, just as I am, I come, you know, which is sung at the Billy Graham Crusades, this is actually a very heinous and evil lie. God does not want Israel, did not want Israel to stay the way they were. He took great pains to get them to change, giving them rituals and practices like we just read. But they had to change their attitude. And they had to change to be like him. And they failed to do that. When we hear that old song that many of us have heard in the Protestant world, just as I am, I come, it sort of strikes at the old idea that the big thing about being a Christian is just being nice. And continuing in sin is understood by God. And he's merciful and kind. That is not a true message. When we first come in contact with the truth, there are big changes that we suddenly have to make. In order to break away from the ways of this world and start to live by the ways of God. And those changes cause us to make decisions and choices. Sometimes there are personal relationships that have to be altered or ended. Sometimes understanding right relationships 
as opposed to what the world promotes has to be considered. Giving up our job if it causes us to violate the Sabbath. Trusting God that he will look after us in that situation. Even how we dress coming before God. That we don't go before God uh, dressed as we would if we were rock picking on the farm. Even what we eat. That ham sandwich. Those little shrimp are no longer on our menu. Changes. Those are physical changes. But we also come to the point where we start to realize that God is calling us into a culture, a godly culture, a culture very different than that which the world promotes. It is a culture that understands that God does not curse obedience, but he blesses obedience, but he does curse disobedience. And we need to remember that point. The Days of Unleavened Bread are all about learning how we change, what we have to change. God's Spirit leading us to understand that there is a way of life of this world and there's a way of life of God. They are not equal. And we must change our way of life to become parallel to the way that God is directing us to go. When we come to the point where we start realizing God is calling us, we have to make those decisions. They're not easy decisions in many cases. Sometimes they're very difficult, very traumatic. But God expects us to make them. And you are here today, worshiping God. You're here today, you're not shopping. You're not at the dentist. You're not doing your business on God's holy day. You're not off fishing at the lake or just relaxing, visiting a relative. You're here meeting in the presence of God, worshiping him on his holy day with others God has called to be of like mind. And therefore, let's look at the question. What is the meaning that we take away from the Days of Unleavened Bread as they are ending this day? And sundown tonight, the Days of Unleavened Bread will be over. What have we learned? What do we take away from Unleavened Bread? Which is the title of this sermon. What do we take away from Unleavened Bread? You know, given that there are two holy days in Unleavened Bread, I am frequently asked the question, well, we... We sort of understand unleavened bread, but why is God giving us two holy days? Why does he start with a holy day and end? He doesn't do that at the Feast of Tabernacles. There's a high holy day at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles and seven days, and it ends. Then it's followed by a completely different holy day we call the last great day, which is not part of the Feast of Tabernacles and has specific meaning. Well, to begin with, let's go back to Exodus chapter 13. We turn over in our Bibles to Exodus, the 13th chapter. We can start to ask that question. What does God want us to take away from the last day of unleavened bread? We start off here with a command to keep the holy days, the days of unleavened bread, And in verse 3, verse 3 of 
Exodus chapter 13, we read. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by the strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. You know, I'll just stop there. We really have to remember it is not by our strength, our knowledge, our ability, our intellectual capacity that we are here. The eternal God brought ancient Israel out of Egypt and the eternal God is bringing us out of a spiritual Egypt. So on this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. In seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, today, there will be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son that in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it will be a sign to you on your right hand, on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, and you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. <coughs> Now, you will note that Israel was told here to remember the law. Well, you thought perhaps it was just coming out of sin. But how do we know what sin is? And what we have to remove from our lives is a violation of God's law. Now, we're all aware of the scripture in 1 John 3, verse 4, which in the King James Version very clearly states, sin is the transgression of the law, which means the law tells us what sin is. It tells us what we must avoid if we are to please God. God knew that we would need to know what the law is if we were going to have any chance of recognizing sin. The world doesn't know the law, and therefore they don't realize that much of what they do is not pleasing to their creator. In fact, the world doesn't believe in a creator. It believes in a mythical belief, a mythical religion called evolution, with all its incorrect dating and its pretend dating that even confuses descendants of Adam with creatures that were, they claim are more ancient. But nonetheless, Israel was ordered to remember the cost of their freedom, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. To us, that cost is remembered every Passover as the death of the Son of God. But notice in Exodus chapter 13, verse 14, and, it, and so shall it be, so shall it be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By the strength of the hand of the Lord, 
brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass that when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn sons I redeem. And it shall be as a sign on your hand and as a frontlet between your eyes. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, the Jews take this too literally, some of the rabbinical Jews anyway. And they put a little box of containing the law on their forehead and they wrap uh, a tape which has elements of the law written on it around their arm. And they think that is keeping the law before their eyes and on the right hand. When that expression in your hand and in your forehead means what you do and what you think. And that's what is to lead what we do and what we think. And that's one of the lessons of unleavened bread. That we put aside the leaven of this world, its way of thinking. And we live by, in our mind and in what we do, the law of our God. Israel, you see, when it came out of Egypt in that first year of the Exodus, Israel had begun to leave a wrong way of life. Earlier, Israel had adopted a wrong way of life. After the death of Joseph, Israel slowly fell into accepting certain elements of Egyptian society, Egyptian religion, Egyptian practices and belief. They began to be immersed in a culture that was opposed to God's way of life and the culture that he wishes us to leave. And they had to leave a land in which their new faith that Moses was instructing them in made them very unwelcome. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. And it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, that's up near the coast, which would have been the most immediate route to go back to their promised land, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war. In other words, it was more populated on that coastline. <coughs> and um, they would uh, return to Egypt. In verse 18, so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness by the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and encamped in a theme at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, as to go by day and night. And notice verse 22. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. They had this visual symbol, this literal visual event with them, day and night, that was miraculous. 
And even with that there, they began to sin. You see, Israel had begun when they walked out of Egypt that first day of unleavened bread. When they walked out of Egypt, they began to leave a way of life, an Egyptian society which had all its practices and its beliefs, but they never really took that society out of their heart. Despite the fact that Israel was being thrust out of Egypt, actually the the Egyptians, by the time the ninth plague was over, and uh, they were already encouraging Pharaoh to let them go, and certainly the tenth plague, when the firstborn were killed, they weren't even going to ask Pharaoh. They just got these guys out of there. God did not leave them without his obvious leadership. God had that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. And that's a lesson to us that God does not leave us on our own. We can leave him, but if we are sincere, he will not abandon us. He does leave a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, and he makes it known to those who are called. In many ways, the church is a visual thing that keeps in mind the fact that God is leading his people. Exodus 14 is the story of Pharaoh's decision to pursue Israel. When you leave this world, you leave the authority, you reject the authority of its ruler, Satan. And Satan's unhappy with that. Pharaoh was unhappy that Israel was was gone. And he made a decision to pursue Israel after they left, after about three days. You know, at the beginning of the story in Exodus, you can read that Moses kept asking Pharaoh to let him go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice, with the implication that they might return after that. Pharaoh, probably after about that time, realized they weren't coming back and was determined to get them back. And this brings us to the evening that starts the last day of unleavened bread, which would have been equivalent to last night. God allows Pharaoh to trap Israel between two mountain ranges and the Red Sea with his army on the other side. You know, it wasn't that long, a few days, since the last of the great miracles that had caused them to be released from Egypt had occurred. But Israel had already forgotten the power of God to intervene. They had forgotten the miracles of deliverance and allowed the immediate problem to overwhelm them. Notice Exodus 14, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians? For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. That's remarkable. 
But are we so different? Moses' statement to the people really tells us that in leaving the world of Egypt, a world dedicated to living apart from the law of God, they had to leave a culture. And yet, as soon as trouble faced them, they wanted to go back to that culture that they had pled to leave earlier. You know, in times of greatest difficulty, we must remember we have a God in whom we can trust. Israel fell into a great difficulty and they failed to turn back to their God thinking, look God, you've delivered us so far, can you do it once again, please? But they didn't say that. They completely lost hope. All they saw was the challenge. They didn't see the Savior. Exodus 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That is a lesson for us on the last day of unleavened bread. As we leave the days of unleavened bread and go back into the world, there will be challenges. We can expect them. They're guaranteed. But the Lord will fight for us if we humbly submit to him and leave the problem in his hands. Verse 19. And the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. That was got in between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And the pillar of cloud from before them stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And there was a cloud of darkness to the one and it gave light to the other. So the one did not come near the other all that night. In other words, the Egyptians were probably going to attack them at night, but they couldn't. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Now we have people in the world who read this and say, what a mythical little story. After all, they weren't by the Red Sea, they were by the Yom Suf. And they take the Hebrew term used in the scriptures, which means literally the Sea of Reeds. Yom Suf is the Hebrew that's translated into the Red Sea in your Bibles. And it means the Sea of Reeds. And they say, well, it could be an ocean, wouldn't call it the Sea of Reeds. It must be uh, something else. Uh, like a swamp. Yes, yes, a swamp. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? Because God, the creator of the universe, couldn't possibly part the sea. The only problem with that is when you read through the book of Numbers, book of Exodus, it talks about this Red Sea. Even Solomon in First Kings was building a fleet of ships, ocean-going ships at Elath. And the Bible says it was on the Yom Suf, the Red Sea. In other words, the Gulf of Aqaba was what it's referring to in that particular scripture. The Red Sea was what we call the Red Sea today. It was not a swamp. Uh, those who don't believe the scriptures are those even who've been among us sometimes 
are embarrassed about believing the literal word of God, and so they make up some other story. They don't trust the Bible. They don't trust what it says. It seems that Jesus Christ and the apostles believe the Bible. So must we, in its literal terms, in its literal word. At any rate, he caused that sea to part. And in verse 22, So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. He took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. <laughs> it's pretty difficult to drive a chariot without wheels. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of the, uh, Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They sort of clued in, like, we are in trouble here. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea and the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and on their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth and it would be very violent. The sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it or away from it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea and the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Not one. They were all dead. And the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. And by the way, to get two to two and a half to four million people across there in one night, that would have had been many miles wide. It wasn't just a little narrow uh, event through the sea because you literally couldn't move on a narrow front that many people through the sea in one evening. It had to be a very wide area. And so the Lord saved the Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. And notice verse 31. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So for a while, they were believing. You know, Moses was instructing this people to have faith in God to deliver us and to stand firm and upright against the forces that oppose God's will. That is, those who try to make us break the law or try to make us doubt God or try to make us doubt the veracity of Holy Scripture. Note the instruction the Apostle James gives and how similar it relates to the events of the last day of unleavened bread. James chapter 4, just hold your place over in Exodus and uh, go to James, the fourth chapter, and verse 7. What does James say? Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is a promise of Scripture. Mr. Ames often talks about claim God's promises. 
Well, that's one of them. You resist him how? By rejecting sin and obeying his law. And Satan will flee. When you make that choice, draw near to God through our prayer, through our humble obedience to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, we are to learn to resist Satan and to call upon our God for help and to make it a habit of turning to God, but also to make it a habit of struggling to do what's right and to make right choices. When we make right choices, we exercise faith. And when we exercise faith through obedience, God will be near. That is his firm promise. Let's go back to Exodus 14. We saw the army of Pharaoh was destroyed. The pursuer was destroyed. Now, ancient Israel had gone through the Red Sea, and Paul tells us, uh, you can just note it down in 1 Corinthians 10:2 that Israel was baptized in the sea. And when they walked through that sea, through those walls of water, they were <clears throat> separated from the world. They were a new people that came out of the other side, just as a person who is baptized is buried. That old person dies in that, well, figuratively, dies in that baptismal water. And a new person comes out forgiven and has a new life, a new lease on life. Israel, when they walked out of the sea, they had a new lease on life. They were no longer slaves. They were released. And they should have realized an attitude of dependence. Verse 31 of Exodus 14 says, you know, they saw the great work that the Lord did. And for a little while, they feared God and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Between the time we are called and begin to act on that calling, that is, we start to try to keep God's law, we start to realize, hey, this is for real. That represents, you know, our, our calling to recognize the sacrifice of Christ, what he did for us. And it represents that first day of unleavened bread where we make that commitment. All right, we're, we're going to try this. We're going to obey God. We're going to try to put sin out of our lives. We're going to start that process of getting rid of those sins that separate us, that create the barrier between us and our Heavenly Father. And <clears throat> that first day of unleavened bread represents that choice to go the right way and to accept the sacrifice of Christ. But when we make that choice, Satan will make every effort to try to distract us. He will threaten us. And he will generally try to remove us from the truth by some method. Now, he may use employers. He may use family, friends. He may use illness. He may use other tactics. However, once we make the decision to act, and tr Satan will often try to turn up the heat. After we're baptized, we make that decision. Satan sometimes turns the heat up on us. 
because he's like Pharaoh. He wants to pursue. He doesn't like someone leaving his authority and going over to the other side. And if we are sincere, God will definitely, without fail, assist us. Perhaps not always in the way we have in mind, but we will get to the point where we will make a desire to make a firm commitment, symbolized by baptism. We make that choice of starting to come out of sin and then by the end of that process, we realize there is no other way. We've got to commit our life to God and we are baptized. Israel, Israel was sort of, they had little choice. We do have a choice spiritually and we have to make that commitment. That's symbolized by baptism. If you don't make that commitment, after God has called us, what can he do with us? The story of ancient Israel tells us that Israel was eventually put in a spot by God where they had to leave Egypt. They were simply thrust out. But by the time the last day of unleavened bread rolled around, they left Egypt, they went through the Red Sea, they were figuratively baptized, they went in as slave people, and they came out the other side of that ocean body as a free nation under the authority of God. You know, Amos uh, once stated that they were the only people to whom God in the Old Testament period truly revealed himself and his law. And for a moment, as Exodus 15, Exodus 14, 31 tells us, they had the right idea. They got it right. They feared the Lord and they understood that God and Moses were teaching them the truth. Their national state had changed. Unfortunately, their conversion was an outward one. Ours must be inward. And we must want to keep the law. We must want to keep the Sabbath. We must want to obey God through our even our tithing. It is a, an honor. It is a pleasure to obey God because we know we are pleasing him, and if we please him, we know he's backing us up. And if we are to allow man or family employer to come between us and keeping God's commands, it's because we fear man more than we fear God. And that is a very common reason for sin. One of the lessons that Israel should have learned watching the world's greatest army be utterly and totally annihilated on the last day of unleavened bread was that God is more powerful than man, any combination of men. And they should have feared God more than man. That's a converted or unleavened attitude. For a very short time, as recorded in the 31st verse there, they did. But as soon as the cares of the world came in, everything changed. The last day of unleavened bread represents our acceptance of conversion and our decision to be baptized. And once Israel went through that sea, they were totally committed. There was no way back. God wasn't going to open that sea up again. And they were now dependent upon God for everything, including their food and water. Notice over in Exodus chapter 16, Exodus 16, verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I will rain bread from heaven on you. Of course, the people complained. They didn't have anything to eat. I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Why? That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it'll be twice as much as they normally gather. Now, this was a miracle. You know, God, in the book of Exodus here, talks about the manna, giving them that food, that manna, after they have come through the Red Sea. God was looking after them. He was feeding them. But he tested them. They would get manna every morning. They would collect so much. They had to get up and get it. They couldn't be lazy and just lay about. They had to get up and gather it. And they could only gather so much. If they gathered too much and tried to stuff some under the pillow at night, in the morning it was pretty foul-smelling and it was full of maggots. Not very pleasant. So he made sure that they would obey him. They would gather so much and that was it. They eat it all up. And uh, in the morning, they gather some more. They couldn't keep it over. They could, it, it would spoil. But on the sixth day, when they gathered it, there was a miracle. It was preserved an extra day. You know, the land rest is the same thing. In the land rest, there was a double crop in the sixth year of a seven-year cycle. You can read about that in the Bible. A 100% crop growth increase and it was miraculously preserved for a whole year. On the 48th year, there was a triple crop, part of the Jubilee Law, and it was miraculously preserved for two years. It was a miracle. It showed them God was their king. Now, sometimes we think the land rest was a soil fertility treatment, but, you know, soil science doesn't really bear that out. The fact is, the land rest was a miracle. If it was a soil fertility treatment, then your crop response should come in the first or second year after the treatment. But it didn't. It came at the end of the cycle. It was a mirror of the manna, a miraculous event. It showed God was their king, and he was looking after them. And this was a miracle. Notice verse 16, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. They said they had no meat. They didn't want just manna. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you'll be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so it was that quails, pigeons, (laughs) came up in the evening and covered the camp. In the morning, dew lay all around the camp. In other words, he fed them. See, they, they now belong to God. And he, brought, he bought them at the price of the firstborn of Egypt. He owned them. He was their ruler. Their old ruler no longer owned them. They had now a duty to be a, have allegiance to their proper God. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, We see in verse 22, it says, For he who is called in the Lord, that's you and I, 
while he is a slave, is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. We were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. If we reject that calling, we return to the slavery of men. If we return to the slavery of men, we have no hope. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been rescued from an evil place, from a world whose only inheritance is death. We have been rescued from a ruler bent on our enslavement and our destruction. And we belong to him who rescued us, who gave his life for us. And we are obliged, once we understand the truth, we are obliged to obey and serve that Redeemer for our benefit and the benefit of all mankind eventually. Just as ancient Israel needed God for survival for their journey in the Sinai, so we need to realize how literally we need God's protection and survival in our journey through this spiritual wilderness. You know, after our commitment to God and our baptism, we are dependent upon God much more than we realize. We're dependent on God who called us and freed us by a great miracle, delivering us from the deception of this world and certain death. And we are suddenly to become aware when our mind is opened to understand the things that matter to God that often do not matter in this evil world. And we discover it, doesn't, it does matter to God what kind of language we use. Is our language clean? Is it honest? Is it free of uh, gossip, free of destroying someone else's character? It does matter to God how we use sexual relations, that it is only for that marriage between a man and a woman, a biological man and a biological woman. Period. Full stop. And anything else is wrong. And it will cause hurt, sorrow, and pain. It does matter to God if we're honest. It does matter to God if we are observing false religious festivals like Easter or Christmas instead of the holy days that he created. And we can't do both. We can't serve the Lord and Baal, as Israel tried. It does matter to God if we don't pay our tithes. To him, it's theft. And no matter what reason we may use to justify our action, it's theft from the eternal God who saved us and gives us an opportunity of eternal life. It does matter to God from a cultural perspective what kind of music we listen to, what kind of entertainment we watch, if we're polite, if we dress properly, if we are respectful to other people. We are to reflect the culture of the eternal God, not the culture of this world, because this culture of this world is going to go. And if we try to keep that culture, 
we're going to go with it. We must learn when we make a commitment, it does matter if we keep that commitment to God. And this day, this last day of unleavened bread, represents us being committed to and being dependent on God. And Israel, Israel will learn to rely on God in the time ahead. You know, Amos 5.3, we can jot that down, tells us that about 10% of the population of Israel will survive the coming troubles. But they will learn the lesson of the last day of unleavened bread. Notice Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah, the 10th chapter, and uh, verse 20. Isaiah 10 and verse 20. It says here, And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel, the survivors, and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob, will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. Most will die. They'll be resurrected in the second resurrection. But the destruction decree shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him, like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, as his rod was on the sea, so he will lift it up in the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that this burden will be taken away from your shoulder and this yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. He has come to Aeth, he has passed through Migron at Mishmash, he has attended his equipment, etc. He talks here about the release, the salvation of the physical nation of Israel that will come. They will learn to rely on their true king, the only one who does have their best interest at heart. But for us, this is not for us, that scripture. That's talking about physical Israel. For us, it means the kingdom of God. And when Jesus Christ returns to do all this, we will be with him as spirit beings, as members of the kingdom. You know, the, the kingdom of God is composed of spirit beings only. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Only the, only the spirit-born members of God's family are in the kingdom. Others are ruled by the kingdom. The physical nation will learn to rely on their true king and eventually they too will have that opportunity to be born spirit. For us, we can remember the miracle of our calling on these days of unleavened bread and throughout the year. How we got here. How did we learn the truth? Never forget that miracle of your mind opening. It should be a great encouragement to us when we think of it. Trusting in the power of the God who called us.
There is a writing of David that's recorded in the book of 2 Samuel that was written by David at, at the time when God delivered him from Saul's attempts to murder him. Uh, David, as you know, depended totally on God and did not take matters into his own hands regarding Saul. He let God deal with it. And God did not fail David. He saved him many times, never failed him. But the writing bears a marked resemblance to Exodus 15. You know, Moses in Exodus 15 wrote a song about the deliverance from Egypt. And there's a scripture found in 2 Samuel uh, verse 22. It's a fascinating scripture. And it's a parallel to the song of Moses in Exodus 15. Uh, the deliverance of David from Saul, the deliverance from Christ of Christ from death, uh, are both paralleled there, as well as the miracle of Israel's deliverance. Notice in 2 Samuel chapter 22, 2 Samuel, the 22nd chapter, and this uh, rather remarkable little piece of scripture here, and verse 1, 2 Samuel 22, and verse 1. We read <clears throat> here, Then David spoke to the Lord, praying to God, the words of this song. On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. It's only God that can really save us. When waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of shale, the grave, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple, and my ear, my cry, entered his ears. Now, you'll note, if you hold your place there and then go back to Exodus 15, Exodus, the 15th chapter, Moses has a song here. This is called the Song of Moses. And in verse 1, how closely it parallels what David just said. Then Moses, in verse 1 of Exodus 15, and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, referring to Pharaoh, he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains, his commanders, are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them, and they sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy into pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you 
and you sent forth your wrath and it consumed them like stubble. Now, that's what God wrote here. Also in Exodus 15, verse 8, he, he continues to write, you know, both these scriptures of Sam, uh, of, uh, and Samuel and Exodus 15 speak of God being our deliverer, of God being employed to help his people. Both speak of the supernatural power of God being employed to help his people. And he will do the same today, and he will certainly do the same in the near future. But Exodus 15, verse 8, he goes on here. He says, With the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed. It's interesting, the Hebrew there for congealed is kwafa, means frozen. And uh, people have speculated about that. Uh, of what kind of uh, system God used to, to create not just the separation of the sea, but the hardening of the seafloor, and uh, to give the Egyptians confidence to go in there. I mean, they, they should have smelled the rat, I suppose, but, but they didn't. But nonetheless, the depth can shield in the heart of the sea. And of course, it's a reference to the great event of the deep waters. But David makes reference, if you go back to Second Samuel 22 and verse 8, 2 Samuel 22 and verse 8, he says, Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken. Talking about a future event. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth and coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with the darkness under his feet. He rode on a carob. You know, we sing this in our hymnal. He rode on a carob and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of wind. He made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, the coals of fire were kindled, and the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. The channels of the sea were seen. Even the bottom of the oceans were visible. The foundations of the world uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of his breath of his nostrils, he sent from above and he took me and he drew me out of the many waters. In other words, David saying, he'll protect us. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hate me, for they were too strong for me. That's something we need to remember in the days of unleavened bread, when we leave the days of unleavened bread. This world's too strong for us. Satan is too strong for us. We can't be successful on our own. The only way we can be successful is if the Lord our God is by our side. And he will be by our side, if and only if we humbly submit to him, his way of life, and his teaching and seek to live by his way of life. You know, David is speaking here in Second Samuel, not of his own deliverance per se, but he's referencing that of ancient Israel and of the future restoration of Israel and the coming of Jesus Christ and the salvation of spiritual Israel. You know, the church of God in the future will be in need of deliverance. There's a parallel as well over in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. 
It's very similar to the events of the last day of unleavened bread that it was experienced by the Israelites. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13, talking about a time when part of the church of God requires protection and will be given that protection. But Satan isn't happy about it. And he'll even seek to find them and to destroy them. But he will not be successful. Verse 13 of Revelation 12, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, Satan and his demons will try to overthrow God one more time. They will be unsuccessful. And toward the end of their tenure, they'll be thrown back down to the earth and they will be uh, very peeved, to put it mildly. And he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's the church of God we're talking about here. But the woman at this end time will be given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. The Bible does speak of a portion of the church being taken to a place of protection. That is literal, that is truth, and that will happen. And so the serpent spewed water, in reference to an army, out of his mouth, like a flood, after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by that flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, destroyed that army, just like the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh's army, which the dragon spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. I mean, all his valves blew at this point. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Some of the church is not in a place of safety. But God still thinks highly of them in a way. Because he said, the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They're still sharing that truth. It would appear they have that testimony. But there is a deliverance that's coming for the church, or at least for a portion of it, that God will intervene. For the others who die in faith, even under persecution, they also eventually will be saved in a resurrection. But we see a parallel here, which David refers to another time of deliverance of God's people, which is yet to come. They will be spared from the destruction of an approaching army, much the same way Israel was spared in the days of Moses. And uh, there are many parallels to this, this event of the last day of unleavened bread, uh, and as the song of Moses and the song of David here indicate. What are the characteristics, however, of those God moves to assist and protect? You know, who God will protect, who he loves, are all committed to obeying him. We must not be lukewarm. We must be zealous to see the gospel taught and our lives brought into harmony with Jesus Christ. We cannot expect God's help to flow on a regular basis if we're not trying to obey him and serve him and to adopt his culture instead of the culture of this wicked world around us. You know, if you go back to 2 Samuel 22 for a moment, we read here in verse 21, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. That's an interesting statement. The reward 
is commensurate with the person's willingness to be obedient. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Interesting. Verse 23. For all his judgments were before me, as his statutes, I did not depart from them. Verse 24. I was also blameless before him. I kept myself from iniquity. David wasn't blameless. David had terrible sins. But you know, when we come out of the water of baptism, and later when we ask forgiveness, God forgives if we are truly repentant and are seeking to really overcome that sin. And when he forgives a sin, it is as if it has never happened. He will never bring it up again. Verse 25, therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his, my cleanness in his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. Mercy is something we learn, learn to live, learn to apply to others. God values it very highly. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. Think you're going to outsmart God? Not likely. Verse 28. Note this, please. Part of the whole process of unleavened bread is to getting rid of that leaven. You will save the humble people. Please mark that. That's critical. But your eyes are on the haughty or arrogant, that you will bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten the darkness. God is the only light. It's the only truth. So Paul said, you know, we know the words of Paul. He said, with God, all things are possible. And the point is, as this last day of unleavened bread teaches, we must develop a firm and total commitment to the ways of God, to be committed to obeying his law, to be dependent on him as our source of help in trouble. And ancient Israel should have looked to God as their source of protection and direction, but they didn't. And they got themselves in trouble time and time again. We must avoid their problems and look to God for direction at all times. And he uses his church to provide that direction. That's just scripture. And we must look to him at times when things are difficult, also when times are good. This is a lesson of the days of unleavened bread. You know, if we go back to 2 Samuel 22, 2 Samuel 22 and verse 9, uh, sorry, and verse 29, it says, For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Only God can take away the ignorance, the darkness that we are suffering from. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust him. Please note that. He is a shield to all who trust him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The only thing we can really trust in. God is my strength and my power. 
He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me in high places. You know, David goes on to say how God intervened to help him in battle and various things and various situations. And when we are in conflict, do we ask God to help us take care of it? Do we put it in his hands and ask him to give, help that employer give me favor in his eyes? Change his mind toward me if I'm trying to obey you. God will do things like that. It's the surest way to resolve an issue. Turn it over to him. He will resolve it as long as we are trying to act humbly and walk justly before our God and before man. Depend on the power and love and willingness of the Creator to intervene. That's something Israel should have learned on that last day of unleavened bread. Don't always rush off and try to solve problems on our own without seeking God's help first. That was Israel's problem. They knew God existed, but they didn't trust he'd support them. The last day of unleavened bread is all about trusting our God to be our support. Depending on him, he provides our needs. And this, of course, is if we're striving to be obedient. You know, in Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7, Christ gives a warning here that we need to take seriously as well. Verse 21, he says of Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You've got to do something. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me who practice lawlessness, who don't obey the law. Paul also made that statement. I think it's in Romans 2, verse 13, where he says, it's not the hearers of the law that are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So in conclusion, in this world, as in the days of Moses, one of the greatest problems we face as individuals is the resistance to give in and be submissive to God, our Father, and to be merciful and kind to one another. Whether it's an employer, a mate, or the government of God, humans don't like placing themselves in submission to God because Satan injects into our minds a rebellious spirit. We must submit to obeying God's way of life and submit to accepting godly culture as he defines in his scripture, not the world's culture. Man finds this difficult Yet it is essential for our survival. It is essential to Israel's survival. The ancient nation refused, and they didn't survive very well, did they? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, obedience and learning to depend on God is essential for our survival. And it's essential for our resurrection. It is the only way to live in peace and happiness and righteousness, and that brings the happiness we desire. Obedience and reliance on God is essential. We live in this world. It's a spiritually black and dark place, totally without light. There's no light, no light at all in the religions that turn away from God's law. And the practices of the churches of God of this world are a stench in God's nostrils. They are well-meaning, They haven't yet been called, but we must not look to them as 
a source of truth. We have been given light, as ancient Israel was given light. And on this last day of unleavened bread, we are released from a land of oppression. And on this last day of unleavened bread, it reminds us that God stepped in and took care of his people. And God will step in and take care of us. And his angels are there at his command to look after us. And he will look after us. Finally, turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 10. Isaiah 50 and verse 10. Very, very important little scripture. It says, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant and walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. The last day of unleavened bread, the days of unleavened bread, teach us to rely on our God, to obey him. We have been released from a deception, from a great spiritual captivity. We are now facing a dangerous journey in a hostile and dry and lifeless land as we journey toward our promised land. There is no hope of survival in this world unless we rely on our God, seek his leadership and advice and submit to him willingly. And the acceptance of the reliance of our God, the acceptance of relying on him is the great lesson of the days of unleavened bread, especially of this last day of unleavened bread. So I wish you a very pleasant year, and uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next holy day.